Smart Podcast, episode 147. Back in episode 32 of this podcast, about three years ago, we covered a psychological concept called ego depletion. Now, to catch you up on what that is, it's a pretty old model in psychology that categorizes what we call willpower as a finite and depletable resource. If you stay your hand from the cookie jar for too long, you eventually give out. You give in. You wear out. You lose the psychological energy to stay your hand any longer. Or if you don't give in to the cookies, you're more likely to give up on some other task later on that would have required the willpower that you've spent trying to not eat the cookies. Now, I mentioned cookies so much because that's how ego depletion was discovered. In 1998, psychologist Roy Baumeister and his colleagues had subjects skip a meal and then, hungry, sit in front of a plate of cookies. And then they were told, don't you eat those cookies. So there was a little toaster oven or something in the lab, and they would they would bake the cookies there, and there'd be this delicious smell of fresh-baked cookies around. That's journalist Dan Ingber, who wrote an article about ego depletion for Slate magazine. And then there'd be a plate of, of red and white radishes. That's right, radishes. Each person sat down in front of a plate of cookies and a bowl of radishes, but they each received different instructions. One was told they could not eat the cookies, and the other was told they could eat all the cookies they wanted. They told the subjects they were studying taste perception and to take note of the sensations for follow-up questions the next day. A third group, a control group, they skipped this step and just went on to the next part. That's the, that's the first task, and, and that's the, uh, the manipulation task. And they're asking people, especially in the radish group, you know, you have to exercise your willpower not to eat those cookies, to follow those directions and, uh, and eat those radishes, those sad, sad, sad radishes. Now, whatever you had to eat in the first part of the experiment, in the second part of the experiment, you had to solve puzzles. And this was the real experiment. How long would a person work on that puzzle before they gave up? And in that original experiment, the follow-up task was um, you do uh, this figure tracing um, puzzle where you um, it's it's something where you're trying to draw a figure without lifting your pencil off the page and it turns out to be impossible but mm-hmm. um, you're led to believe it can be done and so then what the researchers would do is they would time each subject and see how long it took them to sort of give up in frustration <laughs> on average the control group worked for about 20 minutes before admitting defeat the people allowed to eat the cookies lasted for about 19 minutes. And the people who got stuck with the radishes, who had to fight off their impulses to gobble up the delicious confection in front of them in the room saturated with the chocolate smell, they quit after eight minutes. The evidence suggested the more you restrain that which Freud would have called your id, the more difficult it becomes to restrain it over time. 
Now, Freud would have said your ego was fighting the id, and the more it held it down, the more tired it became, and eventually exhausted, your weak ego just gave into it. That's why Ballmeister called it ego depletion. It was a nod and a wink to old Freud. Now, after all this research, psychologists extended this methodology to all sorts of things. Deplete someone's willpower first, then have them do one of these tasks second, and see how long it takes them to abandon it out of frustration. Some of the things they tried were shopping and talking to people about race, being made to feel rejected, and they even tried this on dogs. Dogs were shown to exhibit similar behaviors to humans when commanded to wait for food for a while before they were asked to wait for something else. More than 200 studies have looked into ego depletion, and people have spent their whole careers working on it. But then, a few years ago, a new generation of psychologists who wanted to dig deeper into ego depletion started to run across a serious problem. It didn't seem to exist. You know, a younger generation of researchers who took to this field and wanted to extend the findings of this field started to try to do their dissertation research, let's say. And um, the first thing you do is, okay, well, let's just get the, you know, get the, the basic, most basic effect in the lab and then try to extend it and try something new. And they just were not able I, to, I'm speaking in vague terms, I think there are, um, this happened in more than one lab, right. um, they were not able to get this to work. I wrote about this guy, Evan Carter, who confronted by his own failures to reproduce some of these famous ego depletion papers, he looks at the big meta-analysis of the field. He's, well, maybe I can look there and figure out What's the best way to run, what's the most reliable way to run the experiment? If I look at this, you know, this paper that looked at all of the studies, hundreds of studies in this field, and he looks at that meta-analysis and he thinks, you know, this looks like the, you, if you look closely at these, at the data in this meta-analysis, it seems like maybe there's evidence of publication bias. Well, that's not surprising. There's publication bias across every field mm -hmm. of science, but it sometimes it can be it dangerously, uh, you know, the bias can be dangerous and extreme. Publication bias is usually the result of scientists doing research, but not finding anything significant. And then because there's nothing to show, they don't try to publish that research in a journal. So the journals are only showing things that worked out. All the stuff that didn't work out gets put into the file drawer. Thus, it is called the file drawer effect. The problem is you end up with this imbalance. One idea, one model might be made up of all these studies that show effects when there are lots and lots of studies that didn't show anything significant journals generally don't like to publish papers that have negative results. So if, mm. if you run 100 experiments on ego depletion and, and 80 of them come up with nothing, well, it'll be the 20 that were, that were quote-unquote successful that get published. Considering this, Carter decided to do a meta-analysis that included all those negative results. He does his meta-analysis, I think, and this is all in the past few years now, and finds that it's um, the overall effect size is indistinguishable from zero. So now you have these dueling meta-analyses, um, which is 
very uncomfortable because, again, a meta-analysis is supposed to be a sort of gold standard for evaluating the quality of a research literature. Now you've got two that are saying very different things. One says this is a real and robust effect. The other saying there's nothing here. With these two models in competition, the idea was now in disarray. So a group of psychologists decided it was time to address this problem head on. They got, uh, I think it was a total of 2,000 subjects in labs on all around the world, multiple continents. So they have these, these, all these different labs. I think it's about two dozen in total. Um, and they all run the same experiment, which is as close as they could come to you know, your basic, your vanilla ego depletion study. And then they looked at the results from all those different studies and they combined them all together and they had the what is in effect the biggest you know single study of this phenomenon yet every molecule of the research was scrutinized every hypothesis stated ahead of time every check and balance offered by the scientific method was brought to bear they they had everything was on the table all the cards were on the table the results come back this was announced um within the last couple of months at a at the um, Society for Personality and Social Psychology meeting, I think, and the results came in, and there was nothing, no effect. No effect. Ego depletion did not exist, according to this research. And I had to ask, Ingber had spoken to him, I had to ask, what did Baumeister have to say about this? I mean, this was his life's work. He feels that this was, uh, this big replication effort was, was a whole bunch of wasted time because it didn't really show anything. His issue was that the replication research only selected one kind of experiment, the one that was easiest to reproduce, the one with the easiest to replicate methods and protocols, which, by the way, was not the chocolate chip one. The scientists said it was just too difficult to copy that experiment, too many variables, too many types of chocolate and cooking times and oven types, the predilections of the participants and so on. For Baumeister, he just didn't feel that this was a thorough debunking. So what are we to make of all this? Well, Ingber says that maybe there is something to ego depletion. Even the scientists who failed to replicate this research said publicly that they think it is real, but that the methods so far are simply inconclusive. But for a lot of psychologists, it's dead. We'll see. In years to come, we'll see. Whatever turns out to be true about this, ego depletion itself is not the problem. It's the publication bias that allowed it to go unchallenged for so long, nearly 20 years. I mean, we would be 20 years further down the line had all of these null result studies been included in the original meta-analysis. And it's not just publication bias that's a problem. It's also the way the media reports on psychological research. And I have to include myself in that, which is why on this, the 100th episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we are exploring the replication crisis. Ego depletion's failure, its failure to replicate, brought the so-called replication crisis in psychology to the public's attention. And since then, there have been dozens of articles about it, some hyperbolic, some not so much, and a lot of them confusing because this seems sensational and scandalous. 
So I wanted to really get down to it. What is going on here? Because one of the most striking aspects of the replication crisis was this effort in 2008 in which 270 scientists sought to replicate 100 different studies published in psychology, all of them in the same year, in 2008. 97 of the 100 had claimed to have found something significant. And in the end, when they replicated all those studies, two-thirds failed to replicate. Two-thirds. Only 30% of those studies in 2008 actually did show something significant. So clearly, some sort of course correction is in order. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And after this break, we will sit down with Brian Nosek, who pretty much started the interest in this replication crisis, put it on the map, and is now heading up the largest effort in all of psychology to correct its course and to get rid of all these bad habits that have been accumulating over the years. All that after this break. The Great Courses Plus. I love this service. I use this service. I tell people in the real world about this service, and I'm just so jazzed that they've been a sponsor for so long on this podcast because this is a service that gives you in-depth information on a huge variety of topics so that you can learn about virtually anything you're interested in learning about. The information is reliable. It is fact-based, and it's presented in a truly engaging way by passionate and knowledgeable experts in their fields. There are thousands of lectures to explore on topics like history, human behavior, science, photography, travel, cooking, and more. One of the very best courses out there right now is Brain Myths Exploded, Lessons from Neuroscience. You get 24 lectures. Each one is about 30 minutes long, taught by Professor Andre Viscontis, PhD, who will teach you about things like, is your brain perfectly designed? Are brains that are bigger smarter than brains that are smaller? Is mental illness just a chemical imbalance? Are creative people right-brained? How different are male and female brains? How accurate is your memory? Do you only use 10% of your brain? Do you perceive the world as it really is? Is your brain too smart for magic tricks? Oh my God, I've only gone through nine of these. There are so many 24, 30-minute lectures. Each one of them is so cool, and each one of them will make you smarter about brains. Brains smarter about brains brains. You will love The Great Courses Plus, and you can watch or listen to all of it on your schedule because you can binge an entire course, or you can skip around and check out different portions of the topic, or you can bounce around to different courses. You can build your brain on the fly, access them at any time from anywhere. And right now, as one of my listeners, you can enrich your life for The Great Courses Plus by sampling it for free for an entire month with unlimited access to learn about anything. Start your free month now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. I don't mind if you share that because I think you need to try this for one month. Get your friends to try this for one month. Binge on brain food by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash 
smart. And now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. All right, I'm going to say something that's just my opinion, but I really believe it. And that is, psychology is working on the hardest problems in all of science. I mean that. Physics, astronomy, those are easy by comparison. Understanding consciousness, willpower, ideology, culture, nations, these are ideas that are so complex we don't even really know how to begin understanding them. So what we do know right now is very provisional, very just for steps. There's a larger than large Hadron Collider level of difficulty to each one of these. But since they're more relatable ideas than quarks and bosons and mass coronal ejections, I mean, they're, they're about our minds, our emotions, ourselves. We understand them on some level. We think we do. It's easier to create eye-catching headlines and, frankly, podcasts about these ideas. And this might just be the problem because the system for distributing the findings of science is based on publication within journals. And publication in journals is itself dependent on the interest of the general media and the, the, the appeal of the headline that might be derived from those studies. And all the biases that come with the media are now causing the sciences that are the most interesting to the public to get tainted by that interest. I like to say that physics subsumes psychology, sure, but psychology subsumes physicists. In other words, the brains in the institutions that those brains create and work within are themselves the subjects of this particular science. So if there are any problems with any of these institutions, psychology is going to be the science that helps solve those problems. And right now, psychology is in need of some help. Psychology has developed some bad habits, most of which have nothing to do with the process of science and everything to do with the way we deal with fame and power and prestige and all sorts of other weird primate stuff. So psychology is uniquely poised to correct itself. As we noted earlier, ego depletion, this old idea in psychology, it failed to replicate. But we didn't know that because, for one thing, there hadn't been any major attempts to vet this concept. And for another, all these little attempts, these tiny failures to replicate, they hadn't been published in journals and made public. Science works best when it's a disconfirmatory process. That was the great discovery of the scientific revolution in the 1600s. It organized all these rogues into this system of universities and laboratories. A journal system was established, and it helped create this replication effort, which tears apart bad ideas and slowly over time accumulates good ideas. We talked about all of that in the last episode in the Half-Life of Facts. But here's the thing. 90% of all the scientists who have ever lived are alive today. I mean, in 1910, only a few thousand people earned a PhD. By 1955, worldwide, the rate had increased to 20,000 people per year. In 2005, it was 100,000 per year, and now it's 160,000. And this rate is doubling every 18 years. Science is enormous now. It's huge, which is good. It's great. But it also means that the journal system, which we use to catalog all that work, it's in need of a serious overhaul. And here are some of its main problems. One, 
the file drawer effect. File drawer effect is the idea that I do lots of experiments in my lab each semester, but only a subset of those actually end up in print as publications, as articles. That's psychologist Brian Nosek. My name is Brian Nosek. I am the executive director of the Center for Open Science, and I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia as well. And as we were saying, the file drawer effect is really one of the major sources of publication bias. And so some subset of the research that I do, uh, you never learn about. And is there some bias, some influence of which things end up getting through into publication, which things get left in the, the proverbial file, file drawer? And there's a good bit of evidence to suggest that the things that are more likely to get through, that are more likely to get into my papers and then ultimately into print, are positive results finding relationships between things, finding an effect of ego depletion on some kind of outcome. And the ones that don't find anything say, nope, sorry, no relationship between that and something else are more likely to be ignored, left out, uh, stored in the file drawer, which makes the ultimate literature uh, look more beautiful than reality. Major problem number two, p-hacking. P-hacking is the process of analyzing my data in order to obtain a positive result, right? If those positive results are more exciting, then I might do lots of different things as I'm treating my data to figure out what we found. And there's there's lots of choices to make. I have to decide which people to exclude, if there are reasons to exclude people for misbehavior. I have to decide uh, what other variables I might include in my analysis to rule out different kinds of explanations. But those choices matter. And so if I'm making those choices, in order to find a significant, a positive result, a p-value of less than 0.05, which is a, was what a, a positive result is in conventional use, uh, then I'm, I'm hacking my data in order to obtain something that now looks better than it is in reality. Major problem three, harking. Harking is once I have that finding, uh, I've observed something in my data, that I then look at it and say, Oh, so this is must be why uh, I observe that. Uh, and so it's it's harking is short for hypothesizing after the results are known. And so I, I, I discover stuff. And this happens everywhere, right? We don't know what's going to happen in advance. We do our studies. Stuff pops out. And then I start to generate explanations for why I observed it that way. That sounds totally reasonable. What's, what's problematic about it is that when we are looking at our data and then hypothesizing about why we found it, we could very much be leveraging chance. We may be seeing noise in the data, random variation in the data that looks like a finding, uh, and now generating an explanation for it as if it was a real uh, event, as if that there is signal there when it's actually just noise. Major problem number four, the incentives to publish. So journals, editors, even reviewers to some extent are incentivized to uh, support, identify, approve, publish uh, findings that are sexy, interesting, exciting, going to have a high impact. Other people are going to cite, just like the news media is incentivized to cover those things. Uh, because journals are evaluated based on their impact factor, how many people cite and read their that journal in order to promote subscriptions, to make more money, whatever else. Uh, and so there's a consequence of the incentives that journals face. Authors ha- are shaped by those incentives. 
I need to find more positive results than negative results, more clean results than uh, results that are messy, and more novel results, things that show something new rather than sort of providing more evidence about things that have already been claimed. And so all of those are, are good things in general, right? Positive, novel, clean results are better results. Those are exciting. They're driving the field forward. They're sending us in new directions. But those don't happen very often. And so all of these factors that you identified, harking, p-hacking, file drawer effect, those are likely to come into play uh, for me to try to make my papers more publishable. And I re need to make them more publishable because publishing is the currency of science. I got my job, I got tenure, I get advanced in my career by publishing and publishing in the most prestigious outlets that I can. So there are lots of personal incentives tied into making beautiful articles that may not be the best thing for science. Brian is at the forefront of all this because he was the person who led the charge in the reproducibility project. That was what I mentioned earlier. 270 scientists tried to replicate 100 different studies published in 2008, and they came up with only 36% of those studies replicating. When that news came out, this phrase started to bubble up, this crisis. There is a replication crisis in psychology. And I've been worried that that was maybe a bit too sensational. After all, we're talking about the problem with sensational headlines. So I asked Brian if there really is a replication crisis in psychology. Uh, I'd say, you know, th th this, th the term crisis is an appealing term for the, the media value. Uh, and I don't think it's necessarily a productive term uh, because we can't answer it accurately. Right. So what does crisis mean? Does it mean that has everything gotten worse, much worse all of a sudden than it used to be? Uh, we don't know. Uh, we don't have any comparison data to say whether the reproducibility rate today is worse than it is from 30 years ago. Uh, does it just mean that it's all really, really bad? Uh, well, that's probably not uh, quite right either. Certainly, psychology is making lots of progress. Uh, other fields are also making progress, and we actually don't know in comparison between psychology and other fields whether psychology is any worse or better off uh, in this. So the, the way that I, I try to answer that question uh, is to say that you know, there are reproducibility challenges. That's, uh, that this project provides evidence of that, and many other projects provide evidence of that. Whether it's worse or better, to me, is sort of interesting as a uh, intellectual exercise to know that. But our focus is on how do we get better from where we are today? This is where we are. So uh, there is a reproducibility movement uh, rather than a crisis. There is a community of researchers, uh, of other stakeholders in the research process in psychology and, and in all other fields uh, that are trying to look at how we nudge the incentives that drive researchers' behavior, how we provide infrastructure to help researchers be more open and reproducible in their research and overall evaluate what are the mechanisms that we can improve the efficiency of the research process to get to true, quote-unquote, discoveries uh, and advance the application of those to solving social problems as quickly as we can. Now, right now, Brian is heading up the Center for Open Science, whose mission is to increase openness, integrity, and reproducibility in research. And they're trying to drive great changes in the culture of all of science, especially psychology. And so I had a, a lot of questions for Brian. There was this one thing that has been coming up lately, and I really wanted to understand it. Some critics have been saying that psychology is in danger of going the way of alchemy or phrenology if it doesn't get its house in order. 
When I asked him about that, he said, no, it's not that bad. Of course not. But it is bad enough that it does need attention. It does need to be fixed. But then on the other side of that spectrum are people like Daniel Gilbert and Ballmeister who are saying that this is all being blown way out of proportion, that there is no replication crisis. This is just science doing what science do. And I asked Brian, what did he think of that sort of hand-wavy dismissive attitude? Yeah, well, in, in, it is uh, overly optimistic, obviously, from my point of view, uh, or else I wouldn't have and be doing things that I'm doing. Um, there, there are a lot of, of reasonable concerns that are raised by Dan and Roy and, and many others uh, that are reasonable questions to ask, right? So questions like, uh, is a replication failure because the replicators just weren't expert enough? That is a, a reasonable hypothesis that needs to be evaluated. The, the claim, is, as you characterize, that the the brain is just totally complicated. Human behavior is completely complicated. We can't expect a study to replicate from one time to the next. That has a reasonable surface level interpretation, which is there may be lots of influences on people's behavior uh, that make it harder to find uh, and reproduce, find, reproduce findings. But peeling it away sort of has a, a very problematic aspect to the claim, which is if it's so hard to replicate because the mind's so complicated, how was it observed in the first place? Right? I, I really, uh, like what was the process that managed to allow that, that the very first time we're able to see it, but never again, right? The, nobody trying to replicate it could observe it because the mind's just too complicated. So it fails to me on sort of a basic uh, principle of logic uh, and sort of illustrates the challenge of reproducibility in our field because we are working on very, very hard problems. But what we set ourselves up to think uh, is that once we observe something, that's real. And then when we fail to observe something, that's because something's screwed up. Something's wrong with that. We can't interpret that. And so that asymmetry in willingness to interpret evidence, I think, is part of the problem that makes reproducibility so challenging. So what do we do? What are we going to do? What is Brian doing and what is, what is the advice coming out of his camp? Well, first of all, here's what Brian says the media must do going forward when it comes to covering all of science, but specifically covering psychology. Yeah, a big part of what we do at the Center for Open Science is try to educate about the challenges of reproducibility. And that includes the media that covers science and then the stories that they write and one of the things that we emphasize in this, because I think that you're right in that general claim of, you know, it's it's hard to appreciate how complicated science is, particularly psychology. And the psychology is in an interesting position is that in that it does appeal to people. It appeals to people in a very general way. It's about them. Uh, and so the it's a lot easier to get engagement uh, with that but simultaneously lose some of the, the challenge and, and difficulty, nuance, everything else. So the things that we emphasize in our reporting is to, in, in how media can cover science uh, more, more effectively, uh, is to represent the process more than it does, right? The easy thing to do in writing a paper, a, a newspaper or article or news article, I guess there is no paper anymore, uh, news articles, uh, is to 
to just say what the finding is, right? Turns out that, you know, it, when you lower your self-esteem, you uh, damage your relationships and ability to uh, get good grades. Uh, end of story. Um, now, obviously, that's too simple, right? If you just give the headline result, then you're doing a couple of things. One is you're not representing the uncertainty of the finding itself, uh, right? Because no one study is definitive, right? And so the uh, there's always some degree of uncertainty of understanding. The second thing is that it overgeneralizes, right? As we know in the study of neuroscience and psychology, that there are lots of moderating influences on the things that we study. And almost every claim starts pretty general. Uh, and then you start to find all the exceptions to that as the that area of research matures. Uh, and so if the, um, if the reporting uh, in about science can instead talk about the uncertainty, embrace that as part of the story, then I think a lot of these issues of exaggeration go away because you can say, here's what this exciting finding is, and the story itself builds in how did they get to that claim and what do they still not know, right? What's still not understood? What might be wrong uh, about that claim itself and make that sort of be a naturalistic way to educate people about science is talking about building in uncertainty as part of the process, because really that's what science is, right? It's a process of uncertainty reduction. We never have definitive claims. We always have, this is our best model of the world given what we know now. Well, then uh, this this leads us naturally into the Center for Open Science and and your efforts to f- to fix this and the efforts of all you know I know this is not just happening in psychology. There's also a lot of in, in medical science. There's there's a whole replication crisis just for them, and that and they're working on the same issues. Um, so what are how what are some ways that this can be fixed and repaired and corrected? What are some things you're doing? What are some some advice? Just sort of give me uh, go on as long a tangent as you need to to sort of discuss the Center for Open Science and how we can um, get better at doing these things. Sure, there there are two main activities at the Center for Open Science. One is trying to change the culture of incentives that drive researchers' behavior to try to align what's good for me as a practicing scientist with what's good for science. Can we get uh, that, so what's in my interest, to essentially, to do the best science possible? Uh, and then the second is to provide infrastructure, uh, tools, software, uh, that makes it easy for researchers to behave according to those values of being open and reproducible, uh, and uh, makes the whole research life cycle more accessible. So we have a staff of 75 uh, people now, 55 full-timers, and then a mix of uh, interns and and part-timers that are working on these uh, activities. And the community team works on the incentives. Uh, And so what that involves is uh, working with journals, for example, to adopt new models of publication that sort of move move away from some of these dysfunctional incentives about beautiful outcomes and instead have publication decisions be based more on beautiful methodology and very important questions. So one example of that is the uh, model of registered reports. 
where a journal uh, invites authors to submit their research question, things that they're going to ask, justification for why that's an important question, uh, and their methodology for how they're going to evaluate the question and then how they'll analyze their data. And that's, that's submitted before they actually do the research. Uh, and then the journal does their peer review based on the importance of the question, the quality and methodology. And if the journal likes it, the peer reviewers say this looks good, uh, then the journal provides an in-principle acceptance to the authors. Go ahead and do the research. Uh, as long as you carry it, out, uh, carry it out competently, we will publish it, regardless of whether it's a positive or a negative result. Right? And this really it is, it is an important change to how the publication process usually happens. Right, You know the outcomes. You read the entire paper uh, in the normal process. This adds a step prior to knowing those outcomes that really is a critical step for starting to reduce the biases that create the file drawer problem, that create p-hacking, uh, that create harking. Uh, all of those are things that are uh, minimized by not even knowing what the results are in advance and instead having the evaluation done uh, on the plan rather than on the outcome. Another incentive related to that are the top guidelines, where we now have about 3,000 journals that are signatories to these guidelines across all of the different research disciplines that sort of define how to be more open and more reproducible uh, in research. And there are ways that journals or funders or even institutions can say, these are the standards that we have. This is our policies for open data, for example, or sharing your materials or pre-registering your research. And if the if journals adopt these or funders adopt them, then there are new requirements for their authors uh, or their grantees uh, to follow in order to maximize the ability for others to be able to see how they did their research uh, and to evaluate it uh, and the basis for it. So that's the incentive side of what the, the Center for Open Science does. The other side is that infrastructure side, and about two-thirds of our team is a software development team, and we host the OSF, the Open Science Framework, that is a uh, free open source uh, set of tools. It's a public good infrastructure that is a scholarly commons to help researchers manage their projects, their data, uh, their research workflow, uh, and have a place in the cloud to archive all of that so that they don't lose their research for their own use, their collaborators' use, their lab's use. And they can use the service entirely privately if they want. Uh, but what we make easy is to make parts or all of it publicly accessible. So I have it there for all of my lab, puts all of their data, all of their designs, all of their registrations of their projects. And as they're ready to do so, the members of the lab make different parts of that public. And so we have this integrated public and private workflow of all the research that we're doing, which eliminates the file drawer effect, which makes it very easy for others to see the process that we're going through. Uh, and preserves all of that. It archives it so that if a machine in my lab explodes or a grad student explodes, uh, there isn't a lot of information lost with it. Uh, all of that stuff is still preserved. And so it has the benefit of helping researchers, but also making the entire life cycle uh, more accessible. And that, that free service has now close to 50,000 users uh, and is uh, really sort of helping to make it easier for those incentives to actually have an impact because now there's a, a way in which researchers can more easily share their data and otherwise. Well, I have one last question. There is this thing, um, I think, that when people hear about this, there are certain people who look at this and think, oh, there goes science again. You know, they never make up their mind or whatever. Um, 
And, you know, I just, uh, and this, I feel like this is not a bad thing in any way. Like the idea, you know, when I find out that ego depletion is failing, failing, uh, failing to replicate and then, and that they're figuring it out and they're, they're cutting it to pieces and they're tearing it apart and they're going to find out whether or not it, there's anything there. It feels like that's what science is all about. And I, I just wanted to hear what you thought on, in that regard concerning this whole, um, episode in the discipline of psychology. Yeah, no, it's a really critical point. And there's sort of a basic philosophy of science that uh, we have to do a better job of communicating in the broader public. Uh, And that is that science is wrong about everything. And that's how it's supposed to be. (laughs) Right. And that sounds crazy. Like, wait, what do you mean it's wrong about everything? So we can't trust any of it? No, no, you can trust it more than you can trust everything else. And that's because it assumes that it's wrong about everything. And the process of science is to question itself constantly. And it's those ideas that survive that confrontation, that assumption that the current model we have of the world for how this thing works is incomplete in some way. It's off the mark in some way. And what we will do in science is figure out over time where it's incomplete, where it's off the mark, so that the next model that we have of how the universe works is a little bit better. Uh, And then we'll start to pick at that and figure out where it's wrong. That is the best answer ever. I cannot imagine uh, a better answer. I can't wait to say that out loud. Uh, science is wrong about everything, but you can trust it more than anything. That's the best. Oh my god! I'm going to put that on, my, on a. I'm going to tattoo that on my arm. Yeah, um, geez, I, I should have thought of it at some point <laughs> earlier. This is amazing. This sort of spilled out. I You can keep up with Brian Nosek at projectimplicit.net. That's where he has all of his research, all of his links. You can also go to the Center for Open Science, where they're trying to do all these things that we talked about in this episode, at cos.io. You can keep up with Daniel Ingber, who was at the beginning of the episode. He writes for Slate, and you can find him on their website, slate.com slash authors.daniel underscore Ingber, E-N-G-B-E-R, or you can just go to Twitter where he is at D-A-N-E-N-G-B-E-R. I'll have links to them and all sorts of other stuff related to this episode over at youarenotsosmart.com in the show notes. And one quick mention here, I learned a whole lot about the replication crisis through the NIB.com, the NIB.com, with this wonderful, super, great, fantastic, amazing comic by Maki Naro. It's called Repeat After Me. So you can Google that, Repeat After Me, Replication Crisis, or you can find it at thenib.com slash repeat dash after dash me. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Head to boingboingpodcasts.net for more great podcasts like this one. For links to everything that we talked about in this episode, go to youarenotsosmart.com. For previous episodes, for all the previous episodes, go to iTunes, Stitcher, 
SoundCloud, Boing Boing, or YouAreNotSoSmart.com. Follow us on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. Follow me at David McRaney. On Facebook, it's just You Are Not So Smart. And on Patreon, it's just You Are Not So Smart. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music right here, this is Banjo Banjopocalypse. <laughs>